newcomer here today, as Matt already mentioned earlier in the service, we'd love to meet you whenever you're ready to introduce yourself to us. You can use the little communication card by the boxes at the exits of this room. If you're watching online at carneyefree.com, we welcome you also and would welcome you to fill out a communication card there. Let us know that you're here and we'll be sure to greet you and love to get you involved in ministry here however you'd like. We're going to be in John chapter 18 in just a moment. And um, by the way, as you turn there in your app or in your Bible, however you like to uh, read along with me, if you don't have a Bible here today, you're welcome to pick one up as our gift to you by these exits. Also, the information table, well, we always have Bibles there. Uh, I read from a physical Bible. It's helpful for me to mark it up as I go. I know many of others uh, find the same, and others just read along in their app, and that's fine either way. But if you'd like a physical Bible, we have one as a gift to you, again, at the exit or at the information table. Let me start with this question, just by show of hands. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Okay, many of us in this room have been betrayed by a friend. It's a terrible experience, isn't it? It's an awful experience to be betrayed by someone that you love. Maybe you've had an experience that you have a man that you felt like you were brothers with. You had exchanged enough of your stories together. You had shared enough life together that you thought this man was your brother only to turn around and you found him gossiping about you. Maybe you have a lady that you thought you were sisters with, that you went through some of the hardest times in life together, and uh, you turned around and you realized that woman didn't want to go with you. She wanted nothing to do with you. She was not there with you well when you needed her. Many of us have gone through experiences of betrayal. Oftentimes, we've been through it several different occasions over the course of our lives. I certainly have had mine to share one just by way of a somewhat humorous story. I was 17 years old, and I thought I was a pretty cool kid. My kids tell me otherwise. They remind me that that was never true, but I thought I was a pretty cool kid, and I had a pretty cute girlfriend who we will call Jean. And Jean and I, while we're getting to know each other, weren't dating too long, but she was a really, really cute girl, so I thought I had something to bring to the table and something to kind of show off about that I had this cute girlfriend. And things were going pretty well until all of a sudden, one day I was calling Jean up and she wasn't answering the phone anymore. And then the next day I dialed up that rotary phone. You remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah, kids don't know. You don't know. You missed out. I dialed up that rotary phone and, and still she wasn't picking it up. And it went, went like this for four or five days with no answer. So I feel kind of disappointed that she's not interested in me anymore but uh, again, we weren't really close, so it wasn't a terrible deal until I came to school and I walk up behind Jean. She doesn't see me, but I see her as she's getting all cuddly in the hallway with my best friend, Randy. And now it's become a big deal. Like, Jean, I don't really care that much about, but Randy, he and I were tight. Like, we would play hoops together all the time. We would hang out together at 7-Eleven. We would go drink Slurpees together. We were tight. And here I am seeing Randy hanging out with Jean, unbeknownst to me, getting all cuddly with her in the hallway. Randy, what are you doing? And it felt like a stab in the back. Because Randy and I, again, we were a lot thicker than me and Jean. And so there was pain there, right? There was pain there. Even for a 17-year-old, 
perhaps especially for a 17-year-old. Betrayal is a horrible experience. If you're 27, if you're 47, if you're 87, betrayal is a terrible experience. As you turn to John 18 right now, we are going to see a couple different betrayals of Jesus. One of them was downright murderous. And the other one was painful enough that if we went through something similar, our knees would buckle and our eyes would fill with tears. This begins a story of betrayal and collusion, which eventually would turn the course of history. It's a story of secret agreements between Roman politicians and Jewish religious theater. Jewish religious authorities that chose to collude together to bring Jesus down. It's the story of a lackey by the name of Judas conspiring with a priest named Caiaphas only to get his 30 pieces of silver and to be quickly dismissed, tossed aside like a pawn in a chess game. It's a story about how religious leaders abandoned all pretense of devotion to God and instead decided to conspire with the military arm of their enemy, the Roman government. It's a story of leaders who are willing to trade a killer by the name of Barabbas for a healer by the name of Jesus. It's a story of a large group of people who are willing to trade Caesar for God. This is the beginning of the end. John 18, starting in verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons, a detachment of Roman soldiers for a man whose biggest crime was feeding 5,000 people. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink of the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man to die for the people. It's a haunting passage, isn't it? Every time I read this passage, and I think of the collusion between Judas and these religious authorities and the way the Roman government got involved in it, it just feels like things are spinning out of control. 
And particularly if you were one of the disciples at this point, one of those that had been faithful to Jesus, it would really feel like things were spinning out of control. And you say, like, how could this be happening to Jesus? But the big idea that I want you to be sure to take home with you today is this. Though it feels like things are spinning out of control, Jesus remains in charge. Even as he is arrested, rejected, betrayed, and abandoned, Jesus remains in charge. Read this out loud with me, far from the screen, would you please? Even as he's arrested, rejected, and abandoned, Jesus remains, he remains in charge. Jesus is the center of this story. There's lots of other characters that we see throughout this passage and in the next one that we'll look at, but Jesus is the center of the story and he remains firmly in charge of all that's about to happen. The other biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place Jesus in what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And their focus is on how Jesus has been praying and praying, asking the Father that this cup of suffering would pass from him. He's praying, Father, could, be there, could there be another way to redeem this dark and weary world? Could there be some other way be, besides that terrible Roman cross and the 39 lashes that are coming my way? Please, Father, would you take this cup of suffering from me? That's where Matthew, Mark, and Luke place their attention in the Garden of Gethsemane with his prayer. John places his focus on what happens after those prayers in the garden. And after those prayers in the garden, under the canopy of olive trees, Jesus prays and then he gets up. He rises with authority and with newfound strength. And if you just picture this scene, he gets up and he stands tall and he walks right up to Judas and the detachment of soldiers and it says this, verse 4, once again, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. He goes right over to them and he asks, who is it that you want? Now, if I were underlining or highlighting in my Bible, I would underline, I would highlight Jesus knowing all that was about to happen to him. He is not caught by surprise. He knows what they're about to do. And he goes and he offers himself to them. He says, who is it that you want? And they say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Here I am. Uh, they fall back to the ground. It's not that they were clumsy. It's not that they were poorly trained police officers. They fall back to the ground because two separate times in this passage, he answers, I am. The English translation here misses a lot of what the Greek would give to us. We would say with correct English grammar, I am he, in answer to the question, we want Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. But in the original Greek language, you don't need to have the pronoun he, he simply says, I am. Okay, if you look at that passage again, I highlighted just these two words, I am, a couple different times, he responds, the Greek words are, Ego ami. We want Jesus of Nazareth, and he responds, I am. I am. I am that I am, he says. And the reason the Jewish authorities in this moment, perhaps Judas, stumble back, again, is not because they trip or they're poorly trained. They stumble back because Jesus just claimed to be God. And they would have remembered as Jews 
the famous Exodus story in which God appears to Moses. You remember this? God appears to Moses, and he tells Moses, you're to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Get them out of their slavery in Egypt, and you go tell them, I am who I am. Moses, who am I? I mean, what, what am I supposed to do? And God says, I am who I am. You go tell the Israelites, I am has sent you to them to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. This is like the greatest name of God, is the unutterable name of God. It's Yahweh. And here is Jesus saying, okay, you would like to come arrest me? Here I am. You think you're in charge of this situation, but I am very much in charge of this situation. You're not catching me by surprise. And there must be like some sense of shock and awe at the irony of this moment that these authorities on behalf of the Jewish religious leaders are arresting one who claims to be the God of Israel. He says, here I am, yeah, you can have me. He arrests them, but this is not the, or they arrest him, excuse me, but this is not the tragedy though that we think of it. This is not a moment for panic. Indeed, the Apostle John is kind of looking back as he pens his biography, and he's writing with a smile that Jesus knew all that was about to take place. He is firmly in charge. As he is arrested, Jesus is firmly in charge. This scene doesn't belong to Judas and the soldiers. It doesn't belong to the Roman government. It doesn't belong to Annas or Caiaphas. It belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, one of the most frightening elements of Christian theology, to me anyway, is this, that God knows the beginning from the end. And so what God's about to do here is he's going to take the wickedness that exists in Caiaphas, the high priest, and use it for his providential purposes in the world. God knows the beginning from the end, which means he knows all the good stuff in me, and he also knows all the icky stuff in me. And there's no place for me to hide. And God sees the icky stuff in Caiaphas and his place with great authority in Israel at the time, and he says, I'm going to use that man Caiaphas for my redemptive purposes to bring the world to me. Caiaphas is like the chief justice of the Supreme Court, which is called the Sanhedrin in that day. And God decides to use him with his evil intent to bring Jesus to the cross through which, well, we would be redeemed. Now, first, but before Jesus appears, but before Caiaphas, he first appears, but before this man named Annas. You might ask as you read that, who's that? It also refers to Annas as a high priest. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he used to be high priest. He kind of like, be like a former head coach of a football team that continues to have great influence over that football team, even though he doesn't continue to have formal authority with that football team. Think like Tom Osborne, right? All kinds of influence, but no formal authority. And so Annas goes back and forth with Jesus, trying to figure out who he is and what he's done wrong but he can't shake Jesus down, and so he says, I need to hand Jesus over to the current head coach. Okay, don't send me any emails. I'm not calling Scott Frost Caiaphas, okay? <laughs> okay, he's just saying, I need to hand Jesus over to the current head coach, the current high priest, who is Caiaphas. And here we see him entering the story in verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient 
that one man should die for the people. Oh, where does he say that? Turn back with me about eight or 10 pages to John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, Jesus has just resurrected Lazarus from the grave, probably his greatest of all miracles yet. He resurrects a man from the grave, and as a result, many Jews say, I'm going with him. Anyone can do that. I believe in him. And so many Jews begin to follow Jesus, and Caiaphas takes notice of this, and so he persuades his fellow priests in the Sanhedrin that we need to take this man down. And so the plot begins back here in chapter 11, verse 50. It goes like this. You do not realize, Caiaphas said, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. <laughs> John reflects. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That he would make one church out of all the people of God. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Like little did Caiaphas know that God was gonna use his evil heart to accomplish his redemptive purposes through Jesus on the cross and through his ultimate resurrection over the grave. Now, the warning sign, again, for me in this, the big flashing sign for me in this is, Adrian, is there any duplicity in you? Because God will use the evil in me, and he'll use the good in me, but I want him to use only the good in me. And so search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. See if there's any mixed motives in me. See if there's any evil in me, and lead me in your way everlasting. Like, we should be living that way, knowing that God knows all. He knows the beginning, far from the end. He knows the good stuff and the icky stuff. And so, God, will you please cleanse me, far from the icky stuff, that I would be useful for your will in this world. Now, again, at this critical point in the journey, even as Caiaphas and Judas are scheming together, Jesus remains in charge, and this is what we need to hold on to. As he's arrested and betrayed and abandoned, Jesus remains in charge. It's like he's saying to the crowd, yeah, I am arrested. I am betrayed. I am rejected. But still I stand with courage to do God's will. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of the world. I am the light of the world. I am living water. I am the true shepherd. I am the gate that leads to eternal life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am that I am, he says. And the story continues here as you turn to verse 15, again, of chapter 18. In the next scene, Jesus isn't rejected or betrayed so much as he is simply abandoned by one of his closest friends. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. 
He replied, I am not. I'm not with him. I'm not with Jesus at all. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. This is kind of the natural human response to suffering, isn't it? It's the natural human response to the potential of violence. It's to run the opposite way. Okay, I see what they're about to do to Jesus. I don't want them to do that to me, and so I'm not with him. What I want to tell you here, though, this morning by way of application is this. Rejection is an opportunity for us to run away from Christ, or much better, rejection is an opportunity for us to run toward Christ, isn't it? Rejection here in this world, betrayal that we will experience from time to time here in this world, serves as an opportunity for us to run toward Christ. Now, Peter was not a lousy disciple, okay? Just because he did this, that did not make him a lousy disciple. He was a good disciple. He was a faithful disciple. He had his warts, to be sure. He was very hasty, and he was very, very stubborn, wasn't he? Now, in addition to that, he had these momentary lapses of judgment. For the most part, he was the one who was all in, who said to Jesus, I will go with you anywhere, Jesus. I will do anything with you for your kingdom cause. But he has these lapses in judgment here in this episode in which Jesus would have been frustrated with him at least two times. The first one was in that first passage that I read in which the authorities come to arrest Jesus and Peter's response, what was it? He takes out his sword from the sheath, and he cuts off the servant's ear. And Jesus says, let me get that ear, and let me put it back on that man. And he heals that man in a moment, and he turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, what are you doing? Like, I'm not leading an armed rebellion. I'm not leading an armed revolution. That's not what I'm about. Put your sword away. Don't you understand, Peter, that those who live by the sword will That's right. Peter, that's not what I'm about. Like, after all these years being together, don't you realize this is not going to be a violent overthrow? This is a peaceful revolution. So he would have been frustrated with Peter in that moment. In the second moment, he would have felt abandoned by his dear friend Peter as Peter walks away, turns away from him at the hour of his greatest need. As you know, the story cut continues, and Peter denies him not just once, not twice, but three times. And after the third time of denying Jesus, Jesus doesn't say a word to Peter, but he sees Peter, he hears the rooster crow, and he looks Peter in the eyes. And as he locks eyes with Peter, I could imagine he didn't need to say any words. Be like a father looking at his son, why did you do that? But the father doesn't need to say anything. He looks at Peter in the eyes, and Peter weeps with a sense of regret In this moment, why did Peter abandon Jesus in this hour of greatest need? My guess is he abandoned Jesus. He turned and ran the other way for the same reason that many of us would. It's the fear of rejection, it's the fear of arrest, it's the fear of the Romans' infamous 39 lashes, it's the fear of being killed for standing on the name of Christ. Those would be my fears too. How about you? Here's something that I pray sometimes. I pray 
that if I ever get into a situation where I might face violent persecution for the name of Jesus, God would give me the courage in that moment to stand with love and boldness and without retaliation in the face of fear. And I have to pray through that ahead of time. In fact, I think through that. What would I do if I was to be in the face of violent persecution for the name of Jesus? How would I prepare myself to respond to that? That's the kind of thing that you might want to talk through in your family. Maybe the kind of thing that you would want to talk through in your life group. Or how about the word resistance that we've used oftentimes over the past number of weeks? Pastor Jordan used this word several weeks ago as he talked about the persecution that the early church faced and the more likely resistance that we will face. Like, do you know someone? Is there someone in your family that bristles at the name of Jesus? Is there a friend? Is there a classmate? Is there a coworker that as they hear anything remotely related to your faith, they start to shrink back and bristle at those words, and they even start to turn away from you? How will you respond in the face of resistance or rejection? You really want to think through that ahead of time. You want to pray through that ahead of time. You want to talk with your loved ones and perhaps process through this well with your life group ahead of time because in all likelihood, if you are serious about going all in for Jesus 100% all the time, eventually that is likely to happen. Now, there can be no doubt that Jesus felt the pain of abandonment from one of his closest friends at this hour of his greatest need. What he wanted was Peter standing with him in courage, and what he got was Peter cowering on the side in fear. But even so, while we at times can be faithless, while we at times can be fickle the way Peter was, Jesus remains faithful, right? And at the end of the story, which we'll get to in a number of weeks, Peter is restored by Jesus back into ministry. Jesus remains faithful, even as Peter was faithless. How will you respond to betrayal? How will you respond to resistance or to rejection for the name of Christ? One of my closest friends is a brother who's been in ministry for 40 years. And he has faithfully served the church, faithfully served and loved his wife, faithfully served his kids across 40 years. He's been a national speaker. He's had a wonderful ministry on so many levels. And yet he has three adult kids, all of whom I know, and none of his adult kids are walking with Christ. In fact, all of his adult kids have rejected Christ. And I've talked with this friend on a number of occasions about the pain of that experience. And I met with him over the, this summer just to talk about some of the challenges of ministry and how to stay healthy across the long haul in ministry and how to deal with uh, some of the rejection that inevitably comes in ministry. And I wrote down uh, some of his answers as it relates to how he's dealt with the pain of betrayal. And he said this, you know, Adrian, you've got to remember that walking in the steps of Jesus includes betrayal. It includes denial. It includes rejection. He bore all of those for us. He lived all of those. And so as painful as those might be for us in the moment, we know that Jesus identifies with us in those, and he would use those to draw us closer to him. 
If you're experiencing rejection right now, if you're experiencing the pain of betrayal right now, this can be an occasion to draw closer to Christ. Our rejection, our betrayal is an opportunity either to run away from Him or to draw near to Him, to the one who knows just what we're going through and even more, who can help us and hold us in our time of need. I'm going to close and judge just a moment with a prayer from Mother Teresa that's been really helpful for me as I process through the pain of rejection and as I have over a number of different occasions in my life. But as I close, I just want to say this. My brothers and sisters, please hear me. Rejection is an opportunity to run to Christ. Rejection is an opportunity to draw near to the easy yoke that is Jesus Christ, that he would hold us and preserve us in our time of need, that we would find rest for our souls in him. And I would even go so far as to say this, rejection is an opportunity to wean us, to deliver us from some of our need for human approval and point us back to our need for God's approval such that we would say, Father, may your will be done in me. Whatever may come, whatever abandonment or rejection I might experience, Father, may your will be done in me. So Heavenly Father, we do ask that your will be done in us. We want to stand in truth. We want to stand in the power of Christ. We don't want to be like Peter in this episode who cowered in fear. Would you grant us instead the strength and the courage to stand in the face of resistance, in the face of betrayal, whatever it is we might be going through? Lord, I know that there are people in this room that are dealing with betrayal and rejection even now, and it is so painful. I would never make light of it. And I ask them, O oh Lord, that you would help. I ask, O oh Lord, that you would help them in this, their time of need. Father, may they come to you May they come to our Lord Jesus Christ who offers us his easy yoke. The Bible says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord, some of us have run the opposite way when we've been looking at rejection. And for that, we are sorry. Lord, we are asking that you would deliver us from our fears. In the beautiful words of Mother Teresa, we pray, deliver us, O Jesus, from the desire of being esteemed, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised. Deliver us, O oh Jesus, from the desire of being preferred to other people, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, and from the desire of being popular. Deliver me, O oh Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of being rebuked, from the fear of being slandered. Deliver me, O oh Jesus. Deliver me from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being treated unfairly, 
from the fear of being suspected. Deliver us, O Jesus, from the fear of rejection. Lord, we give ourselves to you, asking that you would deliver us from these fears, that we would long for only God's approval, that we would live for your approval alone, and you would grant us the courage to stand strong in the face of rejection. May it be in Jesus' name, amen.